Hi guys, Brian Butler here. Welcome to Haunted Movies and Memories. Today I'm gonna discuss a few different horror movies that I watched at various college parties in my early 20s and the delight and dread of experiencing these movies under the influence of a fear inducer I was constantly being offered called weed. If you've ever been around me when I was high, I'm sorry. I'm just so, so fucking sorry. I should not smoke weed, ever. Though, for a time, I found myself almost constantly trying to chase those rare moments of bliss in the peak memory-making college days of knife hits, amazing crossfades, and overall just being a straight-up erogenous noob to smoking. I especially love the way it enhanced movie-watching horror movies most of all. And back then, those times were as worth pursuing as any, but at what cost? After listening to episode one, a friend of mine wanted to know if I had seen the 80s remake of The Blob or David Cronenberg's remake of The Fly. I saw both of these at a young age, but probably not as young as when I saw Orca, because these movies are much more disturbing and I don't remember being that traumatized by either of them at the time. Though I do remember feeling like the Blob remake was too sadistic in the way that it seemed no one was spared by the title creature. It was just gruesome death after death after death. There was one scene that did bother me for a long time. Two teens pull their car up to a lover's lane area and the guy exits the car heading over to the trunk to make them some drinks. You know where this is going. His hot date, played by Erica Alaniac, for some reason starts taking a nap as she waits for him. He has an elaborate bar set up in his trunk, complete with slabs of particle board that have been fashioned into a large frame that opens, which holds in place about 10 bottles of liquor, including a huge can of Hawaiian punch powder he mixes into two plastic cups with what looks like vodka. To mix the cocktail, he uses a cordless hand mixer, the kind you'd use to mix cookie dough with. A miniature basketball hoop hangs from the lid of the trunk. Meanwhile, a small piece of the blob shuffles through the grass toward the driver's side door that the guy, Scott, left wide open, and it crawls inside toward his sleeping girlfriend. Cut to a cigar box, also in the trunk, filled with at least 20 state championship rings, each adorned with a large ruby, many of them having been strung onto necklaces. I don't know the significance of this, but at least he's organized. Uh, he closes the box, then grabs a juicy strawberry from an already open container of strawberries in the trunk and drops it in her drink. Hopefully he bought the strawberries earlier that day and they weren't leftovers from a previous date. Uh, he freshens his mouth with breath spray, closes the trunk, and returns to the driver's seat. Noticing his date is unconscious, but not noticing she's been overtaken by the blob, the next 60 seconds build from him talking to her frozen body, slowly unbuttoning her blouse, and eventually sticking his hand under her bra. Fittingly, this is when the blob chooses to strike. Squid-like tentacles fire out of her breast, wrapping around his arm, and her face turns toward his and starts caving in on itself like a Halloween mask in a garbage disposal. Blood gushing from her eyes and more tentacles shooting out of her now skeletal face. The blob wraps itself around him and pulls him down. His cowboy boot kicks out the driver's side window before disappearing out of sight 
and into the blob. As perverted as the majority of this scene is, at the age I was when I saw it, it was the blob's mutilation of the beautiful girl that saddened me more than the desecration the guy was planning for her, which I didn't really understand at the time. Now I see the two violations being symbolically linked and the girl's corpse getting vengeance on at least one of her assaulters. The other film my friend asked me about was The Fly, which I also enjoyed at a young age, watching a lightly censored version of it several times on AMC. It wouldn't be until years later, after getting the film on Blu-ray and re-watching it stoned, I'd realize there was probably much more cut out for TV than I had thought. And like most horror movies I re-watched while smoking pot, even the things I remembered would cut much deeper as my eyes reddened and my sensitivity to the violence increased. This viewing of The Fly at a college party in a room full of bloodshot, cottonmouth 20-somethings brings me back to the winter of 2008, my first semester at Grossmont College in El Cajon. My grades were not great, but I was passing. I had a crush on a cute, quiet girl in my theater history class who sat by me and seemed to like me back. I saw her in a play that semester, and she was incredible. I had no idea she was an actress until I saw the play, and she blew me away. My idea of hitting on a girl at the time was to just stand there and simply exist. Needless to say, it didn't go anywhere. Yet. I dated someone else for most of the following year and began cutting classes to get ripped and watch horror movies with friends. While it started out fun, either the intensity of the movies increased or the amount of pot, or both, and it somehow became a much more traumatic experience than watching a killer whale bite off Bo Derek's leg at age seven. While stoned, watching Frank Cotton pulled apart by hooks and chains and later seeing his living skeleton revived, connecting itself to his eyeball-clad brain and the muscles rematerializing around his bones in Hellraiser, as well as the dark violence of aliens and the last 30 minutes of Dead Alive, all amounted to pretty orgasmic horror experiences. But watching Wes Craven's The Serpent and the Rainbow for the first time after smoking too much felt like having the skin on my back slowly ripped from my body and my eyes being squeezed out of my head. Watching Clive Barker's Lord of Illusions after too many bong rips was both confusing and like an out-of-body religious experience, a strobe light-induced descent into hell. And don't even get me started on Event Horizon. After the past 10 years, I had spent watching everything from the most sickening movies I could find to the footage of the treasurer of Pennsylvania blowing his brains out on the news. I had become desensitized to violence, both real and imaginary. It wasn't until experiencing the terrible thoughts that ran through my mind while watching The Serpent and the Rainbow in 2009 that made me realize being high had restored the confused innocence that fed my deep fears as a child. And watching these second-tier, more psychologically fucked-up horror movies for the first time under this new, sensitized mindset matched the foreign anxiety of finding a pessimistic oddity at Hollywood Video as a kid. This combination to me became the adult equivalent of the traumatic film-watching I had experienced when first seeing Orca 12 years earlier. In fact, this new feeling was probably even worse. But what would it change about my perception of horror movies I had already seen several times, like The Fly? I'll get to that in a bit. There was still lots of unexplored, herb-laced trauma to sit through. This newfound heightened effect of marijuana on my fear of horror movies hit rock bottom one day after watching the movie Phantasm. My friend and I were very baked and decided to explore the special features on the DVD, putting on the cast and crew retrospective interviews. That's when it hit hard, my friends. Could not feel my fingers, hands, feet, or toes. The skin around my skull felt loose and sticky, and then I couldn't feel even that. 
The old people from Phantasm being interviewed looked orange in their brightly lit close-ups and would move their mouths, but instead of words, only muffled static came out. The poorly interlaced video caused my eyes to perceive what looked like metallic nanobots weaving in and out of their leathery skin as they talked about nothing. The TV screen became 200 feet tall, a giant metal wall in hell everyone was forced to watch forever, helpless and confused. I was a microscopic organism without nerves looking at it miles away through a window in the front of a large human head I was trapped inside of. There was nothing else in my chamber of punishment but a constant deafening noise that sounded like the mind-numbing single-cord wall of sound hook from the song Don't Stop Living in the Red by Andrew W.K., which blocked out any ability to think or exist peacefully. The only fragment of a thought I could materialize also played on repeat and seemed to be translatable into three simple words. Everything is wrong. I tried to speak, not sure if I was actually forming words because I couldn't even hear myself. Like many poor fucks who smoke too much, I was probably asking if I was still alive because this lack of feeling was very close to what I imagined it would be like to not live inside of a human body. After that, I became choosier about smoking, usually just a little bit and almost only when drinking. I started hitting up college parties with new friends and eventually found myself at the home of the girl I had liked from theater history a year before. Could she possibly like me back? She flirted, but she flirted with everyone. It wasn't a big deal. Uh, for weeks, we competed for her affections at these parties where we would play beer pong until the sun came up, and it never did. When drinking, the girl became the opposite of the quiet, thoughtful person I met in class and the one I had seen on the stage. It was an objectionable level of loud nastiness, and coming from me, that's saying a lot. I couldn't complain. I became a louder asshole, too. I was just happy to be there. I don't remember much else about these visits, just the indeterminably long amount of time spent watching the beer pong balls fly, splashing beer, bouncing or rolling off the table, our movements, our yelling, the conversations, the noise, the heightened emotions and arguments about nothing. One more game. One more game, fucker. One more game. It never stopped. I hardly played. I usually loved parties, but this had to be one of the loudest, craziest environments I've ever been so fucking bored at. Why were we there so often? There was a playful tension as we passed the time that made it feel like we were all waiting in line for something, probably sex, that would simply never happen. The prevailing ratchet attitude we all contributed to these parties blocked out any possibility of even the smallest personal revelations or interesting conversation topics other than the never-ending game. It just went nowhere. This episode is getting a little more into the memory side than the movie side, but this is where the fly comes into play. There was one night that didn't go as nowhere as the rest. I believe it was Friday, February 19th, 2010. It seemed like everyone we knew showed up to her place that night, maybe 20 or 30 in all. It was enough people to line the walls of a large, bright green bedroom, passing around the biggest fucking spliff you've ever seen. It was big enough to get them all stoned out of their minds, or maybe that was just me. I found myself trying to jump from group to group and talk, but never actually grasping what they or I was saying, if I was saying anything at all. Looking back on this hazy scene that still feels frozen in time, me, my friends, the girl, the 20-something guests, all seem to be aliens on another planet speaking a different language about things humans couldn't comprehend. I'd love to hear a five-second clip of just one of those conversations and know what exact words were uttered by those people in those five seconds. 
It had to be English. It had to make sense. There had to be some sort of logical story to all this I was missing in my confused innocence. I simply could not understand anything in that endless stretch of time other than how I was feeling. Good and weird. Nothing else mattered. Maybe that's how they all felt too. At some point in the evening, the group settled down to watch a movie. I can't remember if she owned a copy of The Fly or if I actually brought the movie with me to the party. I wouldn't put it past me. I suggested we watch it, and very quickly after putting it on, I felt horrible about this idea. No one was laughing anymore, and the sickening Cronenberg body horror seemed to seep into everyone's brains, trickling like blood down our dried-up spinal cords. I had obsessed over this movie as a kid, but right now, in this moment, it felt obscene. Seth Brundle, a scientist played by Jeff Goldblum, tries to teleport a baboon semi-successfully, with the baboon being turned inside out on arrival. I remembered this baboon scene, but did not remember that the blood painting its muscular skeleton was so bright red that it looked almost neon. The gore was so vibrant and visceral, it felt like it was burning my eyes. I wanted to watch this movie more than anyone else here, and the first scare alone had made me sick to my stomach. I can't imagine how they all felt, but... No one turned it off. Other early scares include a wrist being snapped open while arm wrestling, and then slowly watching Jeff Goldblum's body deteriorate through the rest of the movie after having his DNA merged with a fly's. He becomes obsessed with making his girlfriend, Ronnie, played by Gina Davis, and their unborn child teleport and fuse with him so they can live together as one being. It's a sci-fi gore fest, and especially when stoned, it's one of the most perverse slow burn experiences ever with a glistening wet slime, acid vomit, and blood-soaked finale. And I subjected those people to watching it after that spliff had messed us all up. For 90 minutes, everyone watched in dead silence. Though a few times I may have said, I'm sorry guys. Somewhere in the clouded blur of these nights, which in my memory have all been fused together like Brundlefly, my chance with the girl had somehow come. She was coming on to me in a more serious way than the flirt she handed out like party favors. Before I knew it, she had me by the hand and was leading me down the hall. The small part of my brain that was still functioning realized it was going to happen. I was going to hook up with that girl from theater history class I had a huge crush on last year. My first college crush. And for some reason, I was having doubts that this was the right time. I was too drunk, she was being too obnoxious, it was too forced, too staged. She may have even told me it was going to happen before leading me into the room. Nothing wrong with that, but there was an artificiality to this rushed, casual type of hookup after I'd harbored such strong feelings for her. Obviously this wait for the right moment mentality does not mix well with drunk college sex, but really I was just way too fucking drunk. Because the romantic moment I imagined playing out like the love scene in the car from Titanic amounted to something much closer to the car scene from The Blob with the couple I mentioned earlier, me being the unconscious imploding girl. Or more accurately, the scene in The Fly where Seth vomits up digestive enzymes while his girlfriend watches in horror. I had not only missed my chance, but because of my excessive drinking, I had forever burned my ugliest self into her mind with this disgusting, unforgettable memory. A joke. My grades weren't so hot either. I was failing cross-cultural psychology. There was a test coming up that would either make or break my eligibility to pass the class for the semester. The teacher was fed up with me. I missed the test and had one last chance to make it up. I had to show up at 8.30 on Monday morning before class and take the makeup test at the testing center. If I showed up at 8.30 and passed the test, there was a chance I could still pass the class. I don't recall studying for the test, but I knew it would be easy enough. 
I was so confident about it that the night before taking the test, I had a friend come over and we drank white wine. Boxed white wine. We tried playing beer pong with the boxed white wine, and I quickly found myself in the middle of one of the most ecstasy-filled dreams I've ever had. A utopia of hippie-ish characters singing and dancing on a hill. A heavenly fog surrounding us, filling us with otherworldly pleasure only accessible in dreams and death. The dancing and singing seemed to go on forever, and I did not want it to stop. It did eventually build to a crescendo, and like all dreams, it stopped. My friend was shaking me awake. It was morning. I had thrown up on his favorite jacket. My head was throbbing. It was 8.15. There was no way I'd be able to make the test. For some reason, probably because I wanted to feel like I at least made some effort, I decided to hop in my black Kia, race down the 15 South to the 52 East to the 163 South to Grossmont College, where I'd park in the neighborhood across the street and run to the testing center because there was no time to find a spot on campus. Upon entering the testing center, unsurprisingly, I was told I had missed the test. My only option now was to shamefully trudge into class, which had already started, and address the teacher who was aware that my not taking the test meant I would fail the course. Before I could sneak into my seat, she stopped her lecture to loudly address me in front of the students, some of them I had become friends with in the last couple weeks. Did you take the makeup exam? She asked, knowing the answer. No, I replied, craving death. I missed it. Is there anything else I can do? No, she scoffed trying to hold back her rage and pleasure at my expense. I'm sorry, she shrugged, nodding her head while she spoke as if disciplining a child. She then lifted her eyebrows and enunciated carefully. You really should have been more proactive. Without a trace of a smile, I forced a limp wave to the small group of friends I'd never see again and disappeared out the door. Though she seemed to delight in scraping this slacker kid off her roster a bit more than what would be considered the appropriate distance a teacher should have, she was still 100% right. I was given several opportunities to pass the class with minimal effort, and I squandered them all. I was being a piece of shit. I had to admit, leaving that classroom behind with nothing else to do on this Monday morning was exactly what I needed right now. On top of being devastated and embarrassed, I was still very hungover. The cafeteria was right next to the classroom. I walked in and grabbed a sausage breakfast burrito, which was delicious, until you got to the end and a greasy yellow fluid that looked like Seth Brundle's acid vomit would spill out of the tortilla and all over your hands. I wiped the unwanted burrito juice off my hands, pulled out my sketchbook, and wrote some ideas down. I may have worked on a sketch of a scarecrow for a short movie I would not shoot until five years later. My problems at Grossmont were of my own making, and I accepted that. If I was going to transfer to SDSU, much less acquire any semblance of a degree, I had to get my shit together. Though it would still be years before I'd cut my drinking down to anything remotely conducive to a healthy lifestyle, I did start passing my classes, some of which I was heavily invested in. I even got cast in a couple plays, finally feeling like a part of this community I had been hiding from since I crawled out of high school. To this day, I have uncomfortable dreams about being in school and a horrifying realization late in the semester that I'm still enrolled in several classes I haven't attended in months. Oh.